You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Jonathan Silvertown, who is a professor of evolutionary ecology at the University of Edinburgh, and he is involved with a couple different institutions there, right? The Institution for Evolutionary Biology, and also is it a Center for Technology and Science Education? Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, I'm I'm Professor of Technology Enhanced Science Education. Yeah, we'll have to talk about what that is, but also the author of a wonder a number of books, including a bunch that I have here, a couple that I couldn't find, in addition to some textbooks, which I, I don't have. Your most recent book is called The Comedy of error, why evolution made us laugh. But then we've got a couple others, including dinner with Darwin, food, drink, and evolution, the long and short of it, which is about the science of lifespan and aging. This one, which is, I think the first book of yours that I bought many years ago, an orchard invisible, a natural history of seeds. There's also one called Demons in Eden, which is somewhere on my shelf. I can't find it. When you find it, it looks like that. There we go. And so, Jonathan, look, you're a plant ecologist, and most of your scientific research was on plants, plant diversity. And your most recent book is a book about humor, which, as far as I know, plants aren't known for their humor. And it's pretty much a human thing, although there are some primate discussions in the book. How does somebody go from thinking about plants and seeds to thinking about humor. What is this trajectory? They all have obviously something to do with evolution, but have you seen yourself drifting from a concern about plants into more of a concern around humans? Is this sort of a natural trajectory that every kind of ethologist goes through, or is this just driven by your desire to write for the general public and finding that just, yeah. It's basically, I enjoy a good joke, always have done, and I enjoy writing. And every writer wants their books to have the broadest audience. And over the years, reviewers have said two consistent things about my books. One is that they're witty and the other is that they're erudite. And I, I'm not sure whether these two things don't operate against each other to some extent. But anyway, I thought, how do I break out of this kind of plant ecological ghetto? Uh, that's not quite fair. I mean, Dinner with Darwin is a, a book of broad appeal that deals with all kinds of things. But and so I thought, why don't I play to my strengths or what people say my strengths are? So I started looking into the subject about the evolution of humor, about which I knew nothing. But the nice thing about evolutionary biology is that it was relevant to anything alive and anything that things that are alive do. And so you perhaps an arrogant assumption that there, you can make some progress on any topic of this kind. And so I started looking at it. And what I discovered was, first of all, that almost nobody had thought about the evolution of humor in the round. There'd been a, essentially this one really serious book about this, and I got it wrong, despite being by some very notable people, including philosopher Daniel Dennett. And to say he was wrong is probably a rather dangerous thing to do. But anyway, <laughs> we can all be wrong. Plenty of serious writers have addressed the issue of humor. You quote Aristotle and Hobbes and Kant. I mean, yeah, I may well be the first plant ecologist to do it, but I, not the first scientist to do it. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, Aristotle certainly gave it some thought and every philosophy you've ever heard of since has too. And basically what I try and do in the book is 
with jokes, and that's something which people who study humour find offensive, <laughs> strangely enough. I mean, there are at least a couple of prominent authors on this subject who said you mustn't laugh at, at what we do. We study jokes, we don't make them, and I know they hate me for this, but actually what the book does is it takes jokes to illustrate yeah, each of the jokes is illustrating the point, which I enjoy. Exactly. Oh, and the thing I don't do is actually murder any jokes. So I don't dissect jokes to explain anything. I just drop them in and hopefully if they're well chosen, then they illustrate the point. I have to say that I did, you know, laugh during the, while I was reading the book and I even smiled, even though there was no one around. I still yeah. smiled. Good. And we'll have to talk about the relationship between smiling and laughter. But, mm. you know... I think the first thing to address is Hobbes's view, which I think a lot of people subscribe to, which is that humor is often about putting someone else down. We all know about ethnic jokes. We all know about gender jokes and so forth. And I, I think it was Hobbes that articulated this, that whenever you tell a joke, it's a way of pointing out your superiority to others. And so in that sense, humor is something which is, it's a mean thing. It's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. It's something which is inherently divisive. And that's one of the reasons why I guess there are a lot of serious religious people who frown on humor. Maybe they frown on it because it's also pleasurable and there's other things. Why is humor oftentimes viewed suspiciously by some folks? I think nobody likes to be mocked. And humor is, is an excellent way of mocking authority. So jokes about people. And of course, not all jokes are about people. There are plenty of funny puns in which there's no person at all. You could easily prove Hobbes wrong with a joke. The favorite one is, I went to the zoo the other day and all they had was a dog. It was a shit zoo. Apologize to your more sensitive uh, <laughs> right. viewers. But puns you know, are not about putting anybody down. Exactly. I mean, they can be, but the fact is that the point I'm making is that Jokes like that demonstrate that while there are jokes that put people down, it's not the essence of a joke. The jokes that put people down are an instance of humor, but they're not the essence of humor. And that's what I try and do in the book is get to the essence of humor. And the essence, I mean, you know, to give you the punchline, the essence of humor is incongruity. It's the difference between what you're expecting and what you get. So basically what you're expecting is, is the setup. I went to the zoo the other day and of course the punchline delivers the, the incongruity and there's good neurological evidence now from brain scans that actually this is processed in different parts of the brain. One bit of the brain processes the setup, another bit processes the kind of punchline and the incongruity then triggers a third bit and then there's a whole cascade of events that's been traced, worked out using brain scans. and. So this has now gone beyond, Darwin understood that it was about incongruity and he didn't invent that idea, he got it from earlier people. But what we can do today is rule out quite a lot of the other candidates for what is humour, which Freud thought, for example, that humour was the essence of humour. And we're talking here about the essence, not just the odd example, but the essence of humour was it's a purging of your anxieties or whatever. And it certainly does that. But if that were what humour was actually all about, then you know, if you're watching a funny movie or a really funny comic, you would basically, laughter would dry up. Okay. As catharsis had its effect, you'd run out. You stop being funny. It doesn't work like that. It works exactly the other way around. You have a good comic as a warm-up act, right? They wouldn't have a warm-up act if what they were going to do was actually expose, you know, remove all the humor from the room so that the, the top of the bill would come on and nobody would laugh. That doesn't happen. So that immediately proves Freud's theory wrong. And it's extraordinary, actually, to what extent you can eliminate some of these other ideas, reasonable ideas, but not comprehensive in their explanatory power, 
by the use of humor. So that's what I do. You say it's about incongruity, but there's plenty of incongruity that does not result in humor, right? So, you know, you talk about error detection and how important error detection is as a tool for survival. But if you're walking down an alley and you don't expect to get mugged and then you get mugged, that usually doesn't result in any laughter. So it's a particular type of incongruity that results That's in... true. And once again, since we're talking about evolution here, I, I don't apologize for mentioning Darwin frequently. He wrote a book about the expression of the emotions in humans and animals. And he there's a very small section about laughter. And he says that laughter is particularly common among young people when they're in a, a happy frame of mind. It involves incongruity and there mustn't be any threat involved. I mean, a threat to the person, obviously. The joke could be a threat, but that is what he's referring to. And so the kind of uh, scenario you're talking about where you're walking down an alleyway and the unexpected happens and it's not nice, that's not funny. So there are a number of conditions that must exist for the incongruity to be funny, right. to trigger uh, laughter. But also you can have laughter without humor, right? Sometimes laughter is just a sign of playfulness and you have a whole section on the importance of play and how humans aren't the only ones that engage in, in play. To laugh, you have to be in a position presumably of some kind of, you're in a trusting environment, right? You feel confident that you're not going to be harmed. And this can be, either mean that you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position around others that you trust, or it could be that you feel that you're in a position of superiority, but in both of those situations, you're not under threat, right? Yes, that's right. So laughter is what, it's just the human version of something that ethologists call a play vocalization. So, and what is a play vocalization? It's the noise you make when you're playing, when you're having fun. What's that got to do with evolution? Play is about learning to socialize. Play is fun, but you might say, why is it fun? Why do we enjoy it? Well, it's actually a reward for learning and a really important thing that affects your future survival and reproductive opportunities. In a social species like our own, if you can't get along with others, you aren't going to find a mate and you aren't going to survive in the more brutal history that we have perhaps today. These are really important skills that you learn in as a child or as a young animal. And it's just as important to dogs and apes and other apes, I should say, all social animals. It's extraordinary that rats actually have a play vocalization, but it's, it's not audible to us. They when you describe rats playing, they were trained to play hide and seek. Is that right? Yes, yes. I, I love this. The Germans are, are misrepresented as not being very funny, but a bunch of German scientists actually trained some rats to play hide and seek with them. This was published in the journal Science. So this is a serious, this is not a, a Mickey Mouse experiment. And so it, apparently it takes two weeks to train a rat to play hide and seek which is actually not bad when you think about it. And when the rats were hiding, they were quiet. And when the rats were seeking, that they, they arranged some kind of arrangement of baffles and things so that the experimenter, obviously a lot bigger than the rat, could hide from the rat. And when the rats were seeking, they made noises. And they squeak at this sort of ultrasonic level, which you can, with technology, you can hear. And it's the same noise they make when you stroke them or when they play with each other. So it's a play vocalization, but of course it's different to ours, but it's, it serves the same function, which is basically to say, I might be chasing, I might be play biting, I might be doing things that could be misinterpreted as aggression, but it's play. And that's the supposed function of the play vocalization. It's a reassurance. And you mentioned at the beginning that there's a lot of laughter that's not associated with humor. And when people have monitored social situations, and most of the laughter is not associated with jokes. It's associated with, essentially, it's like a kind of lubricant of a social 
situation. It can do other things. It can also express anxiety. It can be nervous. So one has to recognize that we're complex beings and laughter has got other things going on as well. But the origins are in this play vocalization. And so it's infectious too, right? So that's one of the reasons why they have laugh tracks, right? That's fascinating. Why is laughter infectious? That is extraordinary. And I think it's because you're essentially echoing. So some go back to the idea of play vocalization. I'm laughing to show that I'm playing and I expect to hear it back if you're playing too. Because if I'm playing and you're not, then I'm in trouble. If you are playing, then you laugh back and there's this infectiousness of laughter. So that's the evolution. Let me call it a hypothesis. You know, how can you prove it? But as to what original social function or evolutionary function of laughter was and actually still is. And at some point beyond much more recently, the 20 million year origin of laughter. Again, we don't know exactly. I say 20 million years because that's when the primates got going. And so that would be probably a recent date for origin of laughter. Speech, of course, is much more recent. We don't really know when it started, maybe a million years ago, maybe earlier. And then you could get verbal humor, but it would probably have been slapstick before that. Yeah. Well, you, you recount how Coco would tell jokes, right? Oh, right. Okay. Yes. So this is a gorilla that was taught American Sign Language and she knew something like 2000 different signs. And there's some doubt about some of the things that were interpreted by her carer as funny. She seemed to understand puns, but the thing that she did that clinches it for me is she tied to get on one occasion, she tied together the shoelaces of her carer and then signed, chase me. I don't see any way of interpreting that as not a joke. And she had the mental capabilities of a human three-year-old. So you can imagine a three-year-old. This is presumably why we have uh, laugh tracks, right? So on sitcom, they would put these in and that would put people in the mood for humor. And you mentioned that people aren't going to, you know, laugh if they're not in the mood for laughing. And I think sometimes if you're in a fight with someone, one way to kind of resolve that fight is to try and encourage laughter on the part of the other person. And oftentimes the other person will fight that and resist that because they don't want to laugh because they don't want to be in an amicable, friendly, playful relationship at that moment. So does that, when you start laughing with someone, it's clearly a, a sign of affiliation and bonding and reconciliation. Yeah, this is really interesting because it's possible to misread the signs and make a joke at the wrong moment or to make a joke that's culturally inappropriate, that's not understood by the other person, not thought to be funny for all sorts of reasons. And we all, all can think of such situations. One way is that the definition of the sacred is the thing that you're not supposed to laugh at, right? In some ways. I guess so. Yes. The Monty Python sort of life of Brian takeoff of the life of Jesus would be a, a good example of that, where some Christians took great exception to it. Many thought it was funny. It's very subjective, actually. Very subjective. Which kind of fits with it being about incongruity, because if it's about the difference between what you expect and what, you, what actually happens, what you expect is, of course, very subjective. It depends upon, you know, all kinds of preconditions, doesn't it? And how, what mood you're in and so on. So it's not surprising that humor is, is subjective in that way. So you mentioned, you talk about tickling a bit, and I think humor is like a form of verbal tickling. Yes. But you mentioned that you point out that it's very difficult for people to tickle themselves. Although there may be some people who have a, a neurological problem that, that enables them to tickle themselves? Well, apparently some schizophrenics can tickle themselves. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't know if this is true. It's certainly in the literature. So basically the body has, has a mechanism to stop us being surprised. 
when we do this. If you really touch yourself inadvertently, you know, in the course of every day, of course, if somebody else does that, they creep up and you do that, you would jump. You don't know what's going on. You react. If you do it to yourself and it, it, it just doesn't. So the body actually keeps track of where its bits are, basically, to put it in technical jargon. And so this is probably why you can't tickle yourself because essentially the body has this inbuilt sense, it's proprioception, understanding the tone of muscles, location of, of the limbs. But if you, if people have done experiments in which they introduce a tiny delay, and it could be something like a tenth of a second between the stimulus and the re receiving the, the touch, and you could be using a sort of little levers and springs and things, they could do it electronically. And a delay of as little as a tenth of a second will mean that you can robotically tickle yourself. That kind of supports the hypothesis. This is about this sense of... Uh, proprioception and so on. And there's a great joke. When my partner's away, I shave one leg so that when I'm in bed, it feels like I'm sleeping with a woman. Whether you think that's a great joke or not, is of course a matter of taste. It contradicts the point that you can't really, that doesn't work. Right. That's but people do laugh, people do <laughs> laugh at their own jokes. Yes, I do. So yeah, I probably shouldn't. Like, comics don't. Right? A professional comic <laughs> does not laugh at their own jokes. And I was told off by my publisher for actually, well, I forget it was the publisher who said, you, you can't say that this book is, you can't say this book is funny. <laughs> That's us. You know, we say that, but you can't say that. But it is, he said, <laughs> which was a relief. So you mentioned also that artificial intelligence has a very difficult time trying to figure out whether something is funny and has a very difficult time generating new jokes. Now, the second part I understand a little better because Creativity in general is, is something that's tough, but recognizing humor, th this seems with enough training data, one would think that we could create a machine learning algorithm that would be able to say, oh yeah, that's a joke. And that's not a joke because this is unexpected or expected. But you say that this is kind of one of the ultimate planks in a Turing test, right? This is, we're not there yet. They often confuse one-liners with proverbs. Proverbs aren't funny. One-liners are funny. Why do you think Artificial intelligence has such a tough time with this. It's people who study this say it's, it's an example of a kind of problem called AI complete. So you basically need an AI system that replicates the human brain, human intelligence, if you like, before it will be able to do this. Now, it would be a brave person who said that AI is not going to conquer this. It's extraordinary recently what progress has been made using machine learning in all sorts of areas. So I'm certainly not going to say it can't be done or even it might not be done quite soon. But at the minute, it does seem to be something that is tricky. It may just be nobody's bothered to get deep mind to <laughs> apply itself to this issue. You know, it's been too busy working out the structure of proteins, things like that. Maybe they'll come up with completely new ways of generating incongruities in the same way that they've been very creative in generating new types of moves for games like Go, right? Where expert practitioners are, are kind of amazed and they say, wow, that's something human would never have thought of, but still super yes. skillful. You know, maybe they'll come up with new kinds of incongruities and create a whole new genre of humor that we haven't thought about before that only other computers will laugh at maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you also talk about smiling and the relationship so the book goes off in a bunch of different areas and you talk about smiling and how smiling is different from laughter and one of the observations which you point to which i had to think about it for a second was when someone scores a goal they don't smile until they turn around and face their teammates or to face the audience. Yeah. I have to say, when I read this, I was fascinated. So people have done experiments in which they put a camera, say you're in a bowling alley and, and there's a camera facing the player as they bowl and then a camera 
facing them as they turn around to the team. And you have a strike, knock everything down, no response. Turn around to the team, beam. It's not just in, in bowling, it happens in other sports as well, including the Olympics, apparently. That's fascinating, isn't it? And when you think about it, what is smiling? It's a social signal. An interesting difference with laughter is laughter is like a broadcast. Mm -hmm. Everybody with an earshot is going to get this. Smiling is directed. And that demonstrates very clearly that it is directed. It's not surprising, really, because after all, it's a visual signal rather than an auditory one. But it does mean it has a different sort of function in social discourse. Well, you mentioned there's three types of smiles. I was only familiar with fake smiles and real smiles, right? So the whole Duchesne smile versus the kind yeah, of forced yes. smile. But you, but you talk about was it reward smile, dominant smile, and affiliation uh, smile, and that these are distinguishable. So when somebody is smiling, you can infer why they're smiling based on the particular nature of the smile. Yeah. And I, th I think if you think about it, you pass somebody in the street, you vaguely know, and you give them a forced smile and everybody, they can see that it's a forced smile, but it's still a smile. It's better than blanking somebody. So we're very sensitive to facial expressions, very sensitive. And smiling is part of the repertoire. I, I am unqualified to talk about this at any depth, but I mean, people who study smile say there are those three kinds. It seems to me there are others as well. Ironic and things like that. It may be more difficult to establish them using experiments, but we know irony is a thing and that people smile in a certain kind of way when it expressed. So I, I think probably one of the most provocative points you make, and I don't think it's unique to this book, it, there's been a lot of discussion about this in evolutionary circles, but the idea that a sense of humor is sort of an unfakeable signal of some other underlying attribute. And when you look at the personal ads, it seems that there are plenty of people, particularly women, that are looking for a good sense of humor in a mate. So what is it about a good sense of humor? And by the way, good sense of humor could mean two things, right? It could mean either that you're funny or that you find someone funny, right? What is it about the good sense of humor that, yeah. that makes someone attractive? The theory I advance in the book is that wit and wits are correlated. And that because you can't fake being funny is... So wait, if I don't, if you memorize a whole bunch of jokes from a joke book, doesn't that make you funny? You have to be good at telling jokes and that requires an understanding of... So the way I put it is this, in an intelligent species, everybody's looking for an intelligent mate. You don't want to have dumb children, right? <laughs> we are called homo sapiens after all. It's, it's knowledge, it's intelligence that makes us human and that and naturally enough we're looking for in our offspring. We're also called what, homo ludens, right? Yes, yes. That's uh, the, the playful human. Yeah. The idea I advance in the book is that there is an evolutionary advantage to humor and expressing humor. And it's basically, it's, a, it's like the peacock's train. It's an advertisement for what matters in human mating, which is intelligence. I'm not saying that's the only thing that matters, clearly not, but it is important when, and this is cross-cultural, when people are asked what they're looking for in a date or a mate, a sense of humor, whatever that means, comes up in the top three for men and women. It appears that men and women mean something slightly different by this, but I wouldn't attach too much importance to that because I think that can be, cult that difference can be cultural, but men tend to mean by a sense of humor and mate, she's going to laugh at my jokes and women tend to mean he'll make me laugh. And what happens in same-sex relationships, I don't know. That'd be a fascinating thing to... Well, so how much of that is an unfakeable signal of intelligence, right? The idea is that humor is essentially sexually selected. So like the peacock's train. And what that means is that actually it has evolved in response to advantages in mating. 
So humor doesn't help you survive. It helps you find a mate. And so what's the evidence for this? Why should it be? Why should one person be looking for intelligence in another? And why should humor be an indicator of this? So in the theory of sexual selection, which applies to you know, all species where there is a kind of mate selection. There isn't in every species, of course, some just release their gametes into the sea and they find each other. But where there is some kind of mate choice, it's important or it's basically if a male is trying to advertise its advantages, that needs to be a faithful signal, right? So you can't fake a big tail as a male peacock. So it's a faithful signal to the female that this male is, a, is physiologically capable of producing this ridiculously large encumbrance on its back end. And if it can get away with that, maybe it's got good genes. That's the theory. I put it very colloquially, but that is the idea. So how would this work with humor? It's difficult to fake being funny. I think if you were to go to a date and pull out your joke book and start reading from that, your date probably wouldn't be very impressed. But more, more realistically, if your humor doesn't seem spontaneous, if it seems too rehearsed, if there's no repartee, it's simply like, have you heard the one about? If you just kept on doing that, I think you would be put down somebody a bit boring. How much of this is about a unfakeable signal of intelligence and how much of it is about the willingness to engage in what we might call vocal grooming. So in other words, paying attention to the subjective response of the, the person you're interacting with and understanding their subjective experience and being attentive to it. There are some experiments which, they're correlative really, which do suggest that there's a correlation between how funny somebody is to uh, another person and how they score an IQ test. So there is a little bit of evidence of that kind. It's not proven. When do you ever prove anything in science? I think the overall, the, it's the best, it's the best hypothesis we have at the moment. The idea that humor helps you in survival because it's part of a sort of bug correcting mechanism that cannot work because of what you said earlier, which is we don't laugh when the incongruity is threatening. So if this detecting incongruities was purely about oh my God, the world isn't quite as I expected, I better watch out. Of course, we have to recognize that, but we don't laugh at it. Why do we laugh only at inconsequential incongruities? The incongruities that don't really matter. It has to be something else. It's not, it can't be to do with survival. And the other thing in evolution, the survival and the reproduction, and that's it, basically. <laughs> so if we're to have an evolutionary explanation for uh, humor, then it's likely to be to do with mating and the sexual selection hypothesis is essentially what that's about. So I understand the notion that humor could be a unfakeable signal of underlying intelligence about the world, but doesn't it also say something about your empathy or your capacity to understand the other person, the audience, where you're attempting to please that other person? So it's kind of a difficult to fake signal of empathy to some degree. Oh, for sure. You might call it social intelligence, yeah, which is rather broadening the idea beyond what I started with. But yes, for sure. Yes. It's very easy to oversimplify these matters. And I, there are reasons for doing that at times, but I completely accept there are all sorts of other things going on. And is there chemistry between people and all these kinds of things? And we like to be made to laugh. So let's, let's switch gears here and talk about dinner with Darwin. At the end of the book, you talk about dinner parties and I'm a big fan of dinner parties. I love going to them. I love uh, hosting them. And you point to the very central role of kind of food sharing 
in the formation of relationships of reciprocity. Food sharing is something that all primates engage in to some, some degree, but it seems to be super central for humans. Yeah, actually, I think most other animals, all of the primates, as far as I know, don't share food the way we do. So I show my students, I talk about this uh, first, at the beginning of the semester, I give them a lecture about evolution of food and humans and so on. And I show them a picture of the Last Supper and I say, so, you know, which famous sort of painting of the Last Supper and everybody's sitting around sharing food, breaking bread, a very a human thing. And I just say, this is extraordinary. This is not something you will find other animals doing. How did we come to share food so amicably? And if you see somebody who doesn't have food and you have some, I think it's a natural reaction to want to, to help somebody that way. You may not necessarily want to give them money because you know what they're going to do with it. But if you know that they're hungry and they're going to eat, you can help them, then that's the sort of impulse I think that we all have. You won't find chimps doing this kind of thing. They largely eat fruit, but occasionally they'll go after a monkey, which they will kill and eat. And when they do this, they try and keep the meat to themselves. And the only way that one chimp will get meat off another one is basically to pester them. And they'll put their hand over its mouth and they'll basically pester it till it lets it take something away. Whereas we don't do that. We actually hand it out. And to strangers and not, or people who are not our kin. So that an evolutionary biologist will say that requires some explanation. It's, it could just be cultural, but it seems to be a universal in human society. Where might it come from if it is biological, if it does have at least partly a biological basis? And we are an extremely social species. And I think there are two places you can see how this might have evolved. One is that. We are cooperative breeders. This isn't what I necessarily go to into the book, but it's so, you know, the famous phrase, the cliche, it takes a village to raise a child. It's certainly very hard to raise children on your own. You need others. Childhood is very protracted, et cetera, et cetera. We help each other in raising children. This is a universal. So we share. We're born to share if you evolved to share. And there are good rewards for doing that in terms of success of survival and so on. So why not share food too? It's all part of the same thing. But there could be a more direct food-related benefit of sharing as well, which is, so there's some great work being done on, on Homo erectus and what they ate. And how do we know what Homo erectus ate? We're talking about 1.8 million years ago. The evidence is largely circumstantial, but what you find is wherever you find Homo erectus, and they, they left Africa just as we did, and they went right across Asia. So they left Africa long before we did, long before we existed. And wherever you find remains of Homo erectus, you find the remains of elephants. They really liked elephant. And I don't mean as in pets, but as in on the menu. And there's some evidence they, they possibly even live in, occasionally anyway, in tents made of elephant hide over bones and things. So how does a small ape, and they were, they were small in stature, but quite a lot smaller than us. How does a small ape like a Homo erectus, our ancestors, or one of our ancestors, catch these massive herbivores? And there were many species of elephants back then, not just the three that we survive now. And how on earth did they do that? They did have tools, but they also operate, they cooperated in the hunt. They must have done. Even a small ape with a spear isn't going to get very far on its own against an elephant herd. So what this means is that in our history, in our hunter, you know, way back, we were hunting big animals in a group. And what do you get when you do that? Enough food for everybody. 
you don't fight over the elephant carcasses enough for everybody. How do you get it? By cooperation. So this, you know, seems to me to suggest very strongly that even if cooperation didn't originate like this, cooperation in terms of hunting and then sharing food was the natural thing to do. And I guess, so I like to think of this as the evolutionary origin of restaurants, that we sit down peaceably side by side with people we've never met before and share food. And we might be interested, quite interested in what they're eating at the other table. We're not going to grab for it. But when we look at the, the diet of man for a very, very long time, the vast majority of our caloric consumption came from domesticated plants and domesticated animals. It's pretty hard to find anything now in the supermarket that doesn't have the marks of domestication on their gene. Totally. But that domestication is only about 12,000 years old. So this is very recent. As a species, we're no more than 250,000 years old as anatomically modern humans, as the anthropologists call us. You know, 12,000 years is not long at all. There may have been some domestication as far back as 30,000 years, but it would have been combined with hunter-gathering. There weren't settled agricultural communities domesticating things in a serious way until about 12,000 years ago. Started in probably the first instance would have been in the Fertile Crescent, so Israel, Jordan, Anatolia, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, but it quickly appeared in many other parts of the world. And we got huge amounts of food as a result of domestication. And it gave a huge upward kick to the human population, which has been essentially increasing at an exponential rate ever since. It's only now beginning to slow down. But you're right. We, we eat now are almost exclusively farmed. Even the fish, for example, which until recently would have been hunted, if you like, in the seas. And increasingly, it will have to be because most fisheries are exhausted. I was impressed by your discussion about how these kind of domestication innovations, how quickly they would spread and how far they would spread. So for instance, chickens, right? The chickens worldwide more or less come from a relatively small geographical area, but they wound up pretty much populating the entire earth. And you talk about how the animals would move, but the people wouldn't move. These domesticated creatures would be more or less either sold onwards from group to group or stolen in raids, but essentially they would migrate more quickly than the humans. Yes. And all, all these only takes, you just need a breeding pair of animals or a pocket full of seeds to introduce something. And then from there, everybody can have one. So there would have been some human movement, but the, the biological material would have moved and then spread faster. That said, there were some massive human movements. Dairying spread with farmers, actual people migrating out of Anatolia through Europe, ultimately to Scotland and Northern Europe about five, 6,000 years ago, I think. And we know this because there's good genetic evidence of it, which I can go into if, if you like. But yeah. And of course, today you can buy almost anything if you have the money. Some of the most successful domesticated species, plant species, they come from uh, a relatively small number of ancestors. So I think you mentioned that there may have been thousands of different types of potatoes, but pretty much all the potatoes we eat now are descended from just a tiny subset of that variety. And yet we're able to do so much with that narrow group of genes, right? You can create potatoes of all different shapes and sizes and, and colors and so forth. Do you think that when people are, are concerned about monoculture, is this and reduction in the genetic diversity of different plant species. Is this a concern or is this uh, kind of overblown? Can we always go back and grab whatever genes we need from the, the native populations? 
it very much is a concern. If you're growing millions of, of acres of one genotype, then you are asking for trouble because there's going to be a fungus, there's going to be a rust fungus that just loves that thing that's adapted to this single genotype and simply wipe out crops. And this has happened. It's happened to wheat. And, and these things are tracked very carefully by agronomists. And it's a worry. I mean, so industrial agriculture likes, likes uniformity, but so do fungi. So, you know, so do parasites, so do pathogens. So you then have to apply fungicide and et cetera, et cetera. So one solution is to have genetically heterogeneous crops. And that could be done through genetic engineering, or it can be done simply by mixing land races. In other words, wild, semi-wild populations is a worry. There are a couple of fascinating stories in the book, one of which was when an academic decided to go and see how much wild wheat he could harvest in Turkey. And it turned out he could harvest quite a bit, right? Yeah, this was uh, Alad. The relevance of Turkey is because Anatolia, now in Turkey, that's one of the sources of wheat originally, the main source. And Alad was interested in how did the plant become domesticated? It grows wild in Anatolia still, I believe. And how would it become domesticated? And so could people actually collect enough food in the wild to get this whole process going? And he tried this out, turns out you can. And so that may be how it got going. And then and you would say, well, okay, well, I don't want to have to trek all the way up the mountain for my wheat. I'll just plant some next to the hut. And you can imagine from there how domestication would happen almost accidentally. Each year you'd sow some seeds, say from the previous year, and you might select the grains that are the biggest ones to grow from. So yeah, we know quite a bit about how domestication happened in those kinds of grains. And for me, I mean, you're in California, the um, fascinating um, story of rye is a nice example because rye started out as a weed of wheat grown in the Fertile Crescent in, in Iran and at higher altitudes did better than the wheat. It was just growing probably as a weed and farmers started basically re-sowing the rye instead of the wheat because it did better and eventually you end up with a new crop. This found its way to Eastern Europe where it was made into rye bread and so when immigrants to the US came from Eastern Europe before the Second World War I guess and around that time, what did they want? They wanted rye bread and pastrami and rye, great stuff. So it was grown in California but eventually tastes changed and the market for rye disappeared or declined and farmers stopped growing it. But they stopped growing it deliberately, but it turns out it was just stayed in the fields and it started coming up on its own and it became a weed. And genetic studies by Norm Elstrand actually in Riverside have demonstrated that actually this weed is the descendant of the crop that was brought to Western North America to make rye bread. So this is a plant that started off as a weed, became a crop, got transported to North America, was grown as a crop, and then became a weed in the space of 100 years or so. So this is like feral rye, right? It's gone back to, to nature. Yes, yes. And the difference between, say, feral and domesticated animals is their docility. The difference between sort of feral grains and, and domesticated grains has to do with the fragility of the seed. Is that right? Wild plants disperse their seeds, which basically means if it's a grass, like a wheat or rye or something, that the spikelet, the little 
flower containing the seed breaks off naturally. And you can tell it's broken off naturally if you find the remains in an archaeological dig. Under a low-power microscope, you can see that the break was clean and it was essentially something intended in inverted commas to happen by the plant. But farmers don't want all the seeds to fall to the ground before they're ready to collect them. So what they do is essentially all select for plants to retain their seeds even after they're ripe and then they come along and depending on the technology with a combine harvester or with a thresher and essentially break the seeds off mechanically and that leaves a characteristic mark as well not a clean break but a sort of clearly broken stick kind of sign and so you can use that in analyzing how far domestication has gone among the grains recovered at any particular time in any particular place and this basically has been done in the Fertile Crescent in many places. And you can see that domestication was gradual in the early crops that people were saving and they might get burnt and that preserves the charred remains, which then can be analyzed later by archaeologists. And the, the whole process judged by this breakage signature took thousands of years. So we could go into all of these books, but I, I want to wrap up by asking you about this role that you have in the teaching of science, right? So this seems like a, a, an interesting position. You've got academic research, but you spend an enormous amount of time communicating with the, the general public. Why is this important to you? And do you think that scientists should all spend time trying to communicate their findings with a, a more general public? Should all scientists be communicating their science? I don't like telling people what to do. And if it's going to get in the way of them doing great science, who am I to say they should be spending time communicating it? However, we are all spending public money by and large. And so I think it's in our own interests to communicate with the public. And some people enjoy doing it, as I do, and some people don't. So I'm not going to say everybody should do it, but I think that in modern academia, it is pretty much a requirement. That's not me saying it, it's just the fact of life. And so do you think that the teaching function helps you to do your research better? Is there still a logical connection between teaching and research or? I think most academics will say that the link is really important, but in a sense, it's what students say that is most convincing on this. And certainly when I lecture our students in Edinburgh and I say, and the people upstairs in this building discovered this they are impressed. They like the idea that they are studying in a place where new knowledge is created and that the people lecturing them are participants in this process and not, as I do a lot of the time, <laughs> simply repeating what they've read. But of course, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. So I think most academics would subscribe to the link between those two. And, but I think there's evidence from elsewhere that, that it is genuine and important. Jonathan, look, it's been fascinating talking with you. I can't recommend highly enough your wide range of books. I haven't checked out your textbooks yet, so I can't speak to them, but I'm sure they're fascinating too. <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> I, need to, I need to get to them. But the, the books that you've written uh, for the more general audience are fantastic. Most recent one, Comedy of Errors, also Orchard Invisible, still a wonderful classic book on, on seeds. Dinner with Darwin, which I really enjoyed, and The Long and Short of It, which we didn't even mention or, or talk about, but perhaps another time. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That would be great. And it's been a real pleasure, Greg. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, 
please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.